But what we've got before us is the giving to David, to King David, of promises from God, in particular the covenant promises that God is making to David that are not in fact new promises, but are promises that are from of old being articulated now and given specifically to David in his circumstances. So we call what is happening here the Davidic covenant, or that's just a way of saying the covenant that God has made with David. And here's where we've been in the two sermons prior now to this one. The first was the Davidic covenant, a house established. The second was the Davidic covenant, an heir promised. And now we're on the third of these, the Davidic covenant, a surety given, a surety given. Now next week we'll consider the final half of this chapter. Here now, the living, the life-giving word of the living God, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Great God in heaven, thank you. Thank you again for the 
extraordinary, precious promises that are contained in this passage. And Jesus, thank you, Son of David, Son of David, for being with us, for by the power of your Spirit revealing yourself to us and granting us light that we might see your face and see you in all of the promises that are contained in your word that are made about you. And today, Lord, we pray that we would see you. If there are those who are here who do not believe in you, Lord, take the blinders off their eyes today and let them see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so I suppose that we can say that the word of the day is surety. Uh, S-U-R-E-T-Y. Of course, it's the title of the sermon. It was in our second hymn today. I left it open so I could read it for us. Did you see it in the second line, the second uh, verse of of the second hymn? It said this, To this dear surety's hand will I commit my cause. He answers and fulfills his father's broken laws. Behold, my soul at freedom set, my surety paid the dreadful debt. It was in that hymn. It'll be in our closing hymn in just a few moments as well. We will sing together before the throne, my surety stands. Now, obviously, the word surety is not a word that we use every day or one that rolls uh, right off the tongue. The point here isn't to try and give some fancy kind of word that you can go home and impress your friends with or people who weren't at the uh, sermon today. Uh, But instead, our point is to understand what God is doing here in his word. But before I define it, here's what I want to do. I want to set up the context of, of the definition before providing the definition. So David, in the passage that I've just read for us and that we've considered now for two weeks, he has just received some extraordinary words from God. Incredible promises from the Lord have been given to David. Now, I suppose that in a perfect world uh, with perfect hearts and sinless hearts, I suppose that one would say that isn't that enough? You know, isn't God saying something, saying that this is what I will do is enough to establish confidence in those words, but in our human hearts, a question often arises. And the question can go in a couple of different forms, but the essence of the question is this. How can I be sure? How can I be sure? You've said a lot of great things. You've made a lot of great statements here. How can I know that these things are really going to take place? Is there anything you can do? Is there anything you can show? Is there anything that you can give me by way of providing me some assurance that these great things that you've said and talked about are actually going to take place? Uh, This isn't the first time where something like that has come up when God made uh, the covenant with Abraham, particularly in Genesis chapter 15. He gives him great promises. He gives him the promise of an heir. He gives him the promise of descendants that will come to him that will be like the stars of heaven and like the sand of the seashore. And he promises him a particular land that he will give to him as well. 
And Abraham has a question. And the question, if you turned back, you don't need to right now, if you turn back to Genesis 15, but he, that is Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know that all of these descendants are going to come forth from me? How can I be sure? David faces the same kind of thing. Moses faced the same kind of thing. When God meets with Moses at the burning bush, he tells him what he's going to do through him and, and gives him all of these promises. He's going to use Moses to take the people out of captivity in Egypt to bring them into the land that he's promised to give them according to the promises of Abraham. And the first words out of Abraham, uh, sorry, Moses' mouth at that point are, who am I? Same words that we'll get to in David next week. Who am I? I, I he hears all of these things and said, Lord, I'm going to go back to the people. I'm going to tell them what you said and no one's going to believe me. Is there anything you can give me? Is there some token, some sign, some word, some name, something that you can give to me by way of assurance that will function as assurance for me because frankly, I don't think much of myself and the way I speak and, uh, and things like that. And assurance for the people to whom you've sent me, is there any kind of assurance? Well, David, uh, and I said we'll get to it next week, but David has a stunning prayer to follow that we'll consider. But in it, David, in response, is utterly overwhelmed by what he has heard from God, and he prays this in verse 25 of chapter 7. He says, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you've spoken. Lord, you've said it. Confirm it. Is there a way to confirm what you have said? Verse 29, Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. That's what you've said. You've said it's going to continue forever. Now, Lord, that is dependent upon you. All of God's servants, all of them, all of God's people, all of God's children at times ask this question. We may only ask it internally. We may ask it out loud. We may only ask it in prayer. We may be ashamed that we would ask the question. We may try to hide the fact that we ask the question. It may come in some different form, but all of us at times ask the question, how can I be sure? How can I know these things? And that's what we're speaking into today. Almighty God is pleased to condescend to our weakness and for our assurance provide for us a surety. Okay? For our assurance to provide for us a surety, to ensure the completion of his promises, to assure us surely he will do it. Now, obviously, I'm playing with the word there just a little bit. Surety is not a common word to us, but sure is a common word to us. Surely is a common word to us. To ensure, E-N-S-U-R-E, is common to us. To ensure, I-N-S-U-R-E. Insurance is a term that is common to us. We know this word. We know the idea that is behind this word. We just have to see it here in its biblical form and in its biblical way of stating it. And it comes to us via French from Latin 
And the basic idea of the word is security. Security. Do you, do you have some kind of security that you can give me for the things that you have said to us? A surety is security on a promise. What is surety? Security on a promise. Perhaps a sponsor, a pledge, a down payment, a guarantee, a guarantor, a security deposit. Let me give you just one example from Scripture itself. You recall when uh, the children of Jacob slash Israel go down into Egypt because of the famine that existed in the land. Joseph, who was in Egypt at the time, sends them back up and sends them back up to go and get the younger brother who was up there, Israel the father, Judah, I mean, sorry, Israel the father, a.k.a. Jacob, uh, is none too willing to send this youngest son down there for fear that he'll lose him like he lost Joseph in the past, and Judah is speaking to his father and says this, and Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, if you had your King James Bible opened in front of you, which I suspect none of you actually do, that word pledge, I will be a pledge for him, says, I will be a surety. I will be a surety for him. Now, when Judah pledges to be a surety, you know, okay, uh, maybe not the most trustworthy person in the world to be a surety, but you get the idea that is there. And, and when men pledge to be a surety or to give your assurance or to give their guarantee, even if they give a security deposit on it. Okay, helpful, maybe not absolute, but helpful. But when God does it, when, when God gives a guarantee, when God gives a surety, when God says to you, I am assuring you, I am insuring these promises, well, how sweet that is, how solid that is. What a solid rock that is to stand on when God does that. So I'd like to trace the surety of the Davidic covenant, and to some extent that means the surety of the covenants as a whole. And as we do, as we work through this, we'll note uh, one thing, and I'm, I'm not going to pay a lot of attention to it, but I just want you to note this at the outset, that when you're talking about surety and when you're talking about uh, assurance, you're talking about it on both a macro and a micro level. Here's what I mean. On a macro level, God provides surety for his people in ways that are public. They are easy to be seen. They're easy to be witnessed. They are communal. They are corporate. They are visible to everyone. That's macro. But for every person, there's a micro level as well. And the micro level is where that surety that God has established is taken into your heart and received as such. It does what it's intended to do, to give you assurance, to give you confidence, to give you and confirm for you the promises that God has made. Take it with David, and, just, uh, and I'll stop them with this in just a moment. David's a king. David isn't just an average person who's out there. David's the king. And as the king, the promises that are given to him are not just some personal promises for David uh, that your house is going to be fine as a house. Um, that, that would be nice, but that's not the point. This is public. 
Right? We're talking about the next king to come forth, and then we're talking about an eternal kingship. These promises that are given to David are macro-level sureties that David is receiving and promises. But he also is a man. And as a man, he needs to lay hold of those things and to put them inside of his heart as an individual person. So macro and micro-level in terms of this idea of surety. Now, in order to trace this Davidic surety, what I'd like to do is, uh, what I've done in some of the sermons prior to this as well, in fact, using some of the same passages, is to show us how other writers of Scripture comment on this particular passage. You don't have that all the time in Scripture, where other writers are commenting on the passage that you're looking at, but in 2 Samuel 7 you do. You have a lot of it. And so we want to hear how do they reflect on this covenant, on these words that are spoken here. And some of these passages I've used throughout this, uh, this mini-series, these three sermons, to illustrate that this is a covenant. Now I want to use some of these same passages to illustrate the surety of this covenant. So you don't have to turn to all these. I will have you turn in just a moment to one of them. Jeremiah chapter 33. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus, and Jeremiah several hundred years after David. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Son to reign on his throne, that's 2 Samuel 7. We're talking about the same thing here. But the point that is being said there by the Lord is, okay, if you can make the sun not come up tomorrow and the night and it not set in the evening and the night not come, then you can also break the covenant with David, i.e., you can't break the covenant with David, right? That's the point of the comparison there. You can't do either of those things. You can't break the covenant with David and you can't break the covenant with day and night either. Psalm 132. Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David this is verse 11, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Now you might say, okay, well, when is it that the Lord swore an oath to David? I don't see the word swearing or oath in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set upon your throne. Whoops, well, that's right there. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the Lord has sworn an oath. What's going on in this chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is an oath swearing is taking place, and the one who's swearing the oath is God himself. There's no turning back from that. Now, if you'd like to, please turn with me to Psalm 89 uh, as I look at this one once again. I've tried to use this one as much as I could in calls to worship, in the hymnody, uh, and singing the Psalter to close us last week. Verse 3, Psalm 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Okay, so here in Psalm 89, we pick up on the same idea. There's, there's a swearing that is taking place to David with respect to this covenant from God. Verse 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. The steadfast love forever. That's my promise that I'm making forever. And the covenant, that's firm. That's, that's solid ground. Uh, his oath, his covenant, his blood. That's what we sang 
in the opening hymn, right? Those things are the things that are surety for us, and that's what's being said here in Psalm 89. Now listen, it gets better, if you will, more intense in verses 33 through 35. I will not remove from him, from David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Right? That's the promise. I won't remove the love from him. We'll get to this a little bit more. I will not remove my love. I won't be false to my faithfulness. My faithfulness is on the line here. I'm the one who has said, I'll keep this. It's my faithfulness on the line in terms of this covenant to David. Continuing, I will not violate my covenant. I will not do it. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I won't lie. The foundation that is given here in this psalm, and we don't have time right now to go through it in depth. The foundation is threefold. The foundation is the faithfulness of God in probably 10 times in the verses spread throughout Psalm 89 from the first one that says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to the one that I just read for us to say, I will not be false to my faithfulness. God is saying, "Mm -mm. I keep what I say I will do. The foundation of this covenant that God is making is his faithfulness, but that's not all. Because he says here that there's another foundation to this covenant, and it is my holiness. My holiness. Once I have sworn by my holiness. What do you mean by your holiness? What I mean by my holiness is I will not lie. I won't lie. I won't change it. I won't revoke it. I won't lie about what I have said. That's the holiness of God as the foundation of this covenant, this surety. And then there's one other thing that is contained in here as well. The the faithfulness of God is one thing. The holiness of God is another thing. It is the might of God, the strength of God that undergirds this. It says, I have the might and the strength to make sure that this covenant is kept, that what I'm saying is going to take place. Verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Verse 21, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. That's the foundation. That's how other writers look on our passage and this covenant with David to be able to say, that's how sure it is. It's that sure. This is the biblical commentary on our text to which we now return. So so they saw this when they read this text. Do you see it when you read this text? That's what they saw. That's how they interpreted what is before us today. Let me look then at this text in particular and show it to us coming out of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. There are two ways. There are two ways in which surety is embedded in this 2 Samuel text. One, and, and, and this, is, this is the first one that we'll look at, uh, and I'll give you both and then give a little bit of, uh, of, of substance under each one of them. The first is that the surety is found in the form of what is being done here and in the words about surety that are contained within this. In the form and in the words about surety that are in the passage. Now, we may not see this as quickly 
as were we uh, contemporaries with uh, David, uh, because this, this type of language is not as familiar for us. But what is clear is that in all of these declarative statements that are made here, I am the Lord who has done this. I am the Lord who took you out. I am the Lord who has been with my people for all of these years, even with the judges. I am the Lord who dwelt with my people in a tent. And then all the declaratives, I will do this, I will do that. I make these promises. What is clear is God is swearing an oath. God is making a vow. And swearing and oaths and vows are not detached, free-floating ideas in the Bible. Rather, they are part of covenant making, of covenant sealing, of covenant confirmation. Covenant itself, and this is the covenant, this is the Davidic covenant, this is God making covenant with David. Covenant itself is a confirmation process. It's a way to make us sure. It's a way to say you, you can trust this because it's a covenant that I'm making with you. It's providing surety itself. All right, on the front of your bulletin, if you'll take a look at the front of your bulletin with me for just a moment, I've, I've, I've copied at the very top there a section from Hebrews chapter 6. I'd like to give you the context before I read those verses. The context in Hebrews chapter 6 is the covenant that's made with Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had nobody greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply. Abraham then patiently waited for the obtaining of the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There's a lot of words there, but this is the basic idea. God spoke the words. That's word promise. When God speaks it, that's promise. Okay, they're the same thing in Hebrew. The same idea, promise and word spoken, but he doesn't just do that. He adds something to it. He adds the oath on top of the words that he's spoken. Two things. It's impossible for God to lie, period, and that applies to both things, to the original word as it's given to the oath that God takes as he is entering into covenant with Abraham. So these things, oath-keeping, vows made, uh, promises that are given, swearing, all of these things are connected with covenant. And let me just show you exactly how that works out in present contemporary setting as well. Today, when we baptize Levi, when Levi was baptized here uh, by the Lord, by me administering the baptism, that was a covenant ceremony that was going on. We were recalling the covenant promises of God, and in that covenant ceremony, vows were taken. You, on behalf of Levi, are taking vows as part of this covenant-making ceremony. Last week, when the new members joined the church, we said they are entering into a covenant with God and with his church, with this church in particular. And as they did that, as they entered into covenant with God and with this church, they took vows. They made promises about their lives with respect to this particular church and to the Lord as well. 
Or think about uh, a marriage ceremony. In a marriage ceremony, the part of the vows comes along. And what are the vows? How does it start? Repeat after me. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses. Promise, covenant, vow, oaths, swearing. They all are packaged up together to provide conviction, to provide assurance for the people of God. And, and the word, that is embedded right in our text. And of course, th there's a lingering question that David's got to have out there that God addresses as well. And it's found in the entire section about the discipline that's going to come to a son uh, when he goes astray. And, and, and then the thing that follows it is, I will not take away my steadfast love from David as I took it away from Saul. Because here's the question that's in the back of everybody's mind. It's all well and good for God to say, this is what I will do, and I will be faithful, and I will not change, and I will not lie. But there's a problem on the other side. Us, right? We're the problem on the other side. David's the problem on the other side. Solomon's the problem on the other side. And everybody else who's going to come through that line. The problem is we kind of go, wait a minute, okay, there were a lot of things probably said to Saul as well, and you saw what happened to him. How do we know that's not going to happen? God says, I'm going to give you assurance. I'm going to give you assurance that I am not going to take away my love. What God is in effect saying here is God is making this promise, he's making this covenant, and he's saying to them that not only will I keep the words that I have promised, but I have a means by which I will deal with your failure to abide by my covenant. And it is through a son. It is through a son whom I love. That is the means by which I will assure your sonship. I will assure this line. I will assure this kingdom. I can overcome your failures. So those are the words themselves. But then you've got the substance that is given here as well. The, 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 the actual things that are promised as the surety that is here. For the sake of clarity, and I can be brief here because I've already preached on these the last two weeks. Let's summarize and say there are three promises that are here. There are more than that and different ways to characterize or categorize them. There's the promise of a house, an heir, and a kingdom, right? The promise of a house, these are the substantive things. And those promises, as we have seen, are on two horizons. Horizon number one is the, the near term. In the near term, David has promised these things, a house, an heir, and a kingdom. He, he can taste them because they're right about here. But what also takes place is the, I've called it, the future horizon or the forever horizon, right? We end this passage with all of these forever statements that are there, and David hears all the forever statements as well. So, so you've got these two things that are promised, the, the, or the, the, the same things, the, the uh, house, the air, and the kingdom, on these two horizons that are out there, and this is how it works. The proximate fulfillment of these promises is the surety that is given on forever fulfillment of these promises. The, the near-term fulfillment of these promises is the surety for David on their forever fulfillment of these promises. So 
listen to it and, 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 and look at it, and I can do it quickly. His house is already being established. David can already see. His house is being established. His fame is spreading. And the house that the Lord has promised that this heir will build, of course, that will be built by Solomon. David won't live to see it built according to the command of the Lord. But David will live long enough to secure the place where the temple will be built, to uh, lay the groundwork for it, to lay the groundwork for the plans of the temple, to see one of the most successful capital campaigns in history take place, to see all of the supplies, if you will, stacked up in the yard waiting for the building of this temple. So David's not going to see it, but he can taste it. It's surety for him because there's the promise, there's the lumber. And I know this is going to be built. That's the site that's already been procured and picked out for this building. Proximate surety. As for an heir, David will soon see the birth of a son, Solomon. And the Lord will give a particular word about that son when that son is born. Through Nathan the prophet, there's going to be a word. We'll get to it in just a few chapters here in this. A word will be given. Nathan, tell David this. Do you remember what it is? Do you remember what the word is? I love him. Tell David this message about this son. I love him. Now, David can't see as well as we see now. But remember last week what we looked at. It's one thing to say, I love Solomon, the son of David. It's another thing when the voice from heaven says, this is the son whom I love. It is the love of that son that becomes the surety immediately for David because David hears this word from the Lord. Oh, wait, okay, this is the beloved son. This one right here is the one whom God loves. And you're waiting for a forever fulfillment of that same thing. Okay, sorry, proximate surety. Uh, as for the kingdom, it is already being established. And in the chapter after this one, we'll see exactly what we see in Psalm 89. Here's how chapter 8 starts. After this, David defeated the Philistines, verse 2. And he defeated Moab, and he defeated this, and he defeated that. And the kings were coming to him. God is establishing the kingdom proximate surety on future forever fulfillment. But the proximate fulfillment didn't blind David to the greater hope that was embedded in these promises. It assured him of them. It's good to see these things in his own life. It's good to see your own son doing well, to see a house being built. There's something more though. There's something more to it that's going on here, and David was not blind to that. Uh, if you want to, you can open up your bulletins to page 5. Peter quotes Psalm 16. There are two psalms that he's going to quote here. Psalm 16, uh, which is, I saw the Lord always before me, and then Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Verse 30 being therefore a prophet, that is David, David the king, David the prophet, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, knowing the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? God has sworn an oath. Here's the oath that is right there. David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David's a prophet. He sees the future forever horizon in the person of Christ, and that's why he speaks the way he speaks in Psalm 16, in Psalm 110, because he's looking out based on the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he can see where they're going. This one, this anointed one who is to come. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore, and do not miss this word, do not miss this phrase, know for certain. Let all of you know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 15, God hears Abraham say to him, how shall I know? And God prepares a covenant-making ceremony, and it begins with these words, know for certain. Know it. Know it for certain. Be absolutely sure of these things. To David, your kingdom shall be made sure. Now, sorry, look again at the front of your bulletin. The front of your bulletin, uh, Hebrews 7.22 is, is kind of there in the very middle of what you got, of what you have in the front. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you had your King James Bible out in front of you, you know what it would say? This makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. Jesus himself, the surety of a better covenant. But that's not all. Because your surety, Jesus, really wants you to be sure. He really wants to assure you of the faith. So now, look at the next verse on here, Ephesians 1. In him, that is to say, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the word, the word goes out, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. The guarantor, Jesus, gave the guarantee, the Holy Spirit, as surety on the promise. And if you had your King James Bible open and you looked at this passage and you said, what's the word for guarantee there? That's not surety. Um, but, but that would have been good if it was surety. But it's not surety. It's the word earnest. Earnest. The Holy Spirit is the earnest on the promises that are given here by God. The Spirit then functions as our internal surety, pointing us to the surety that's enthroned. That's what the Spirit of God is doing inside of you, saying, look up, your surety is there. He's enthroned. He's up in heaven. He's securing the inheritance. He's preparing the place for you. He's reminding us the Spirit is of all of the promises that are made to find their yes in Jesus Christ and of all of the promises that Jesus made and the words that he spoke. The Spirit is crying out inside of us, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, because of the sonship that we have in the beloved Son. The beloved son is the beloved son, and in him is our sonship. So the guarantee is saying the guarantor is the beloved son, and you're beloved in him. And he's the Spirit of God producing good fruit in us to stir up the assurance. But that isn't all. 
That's not all, because God gives all sorts of assurances with his covenant. He gives you the word, he gives you the rainbow, he gives you the seasons, he gives you day and night, he gives you your brothers and sisters who are sitting around you, he gives you songs in the night to sing. And you have the sacraments, which by word and sign through the power of the Spirit point you to Jesus, your surety. Now with all of that, listen to the significance of this phrase, the word became flesh. The word, the promise, the promise, the, 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 the oath, the vow, the swearing, the word became flesh. Your surety became not just words that were spoken, not even words that were spoken confirmed them by oath, not even words that were spoken confirmed by oath in the context of covenant. Your surety became flesh itself. Your surety is flesh and blood, and he's in the place where you're going to go. That's where your surety stands, and that's who he is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So hold fast to hope, pray boldly, rest well, come to Jesus. The surety exists for those who believe in him. Your Jesus is thoroughly, these are the words of the Westminster Confession, thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety. And right now, on your behalf, on your behalf, before the throne, your surety stands. Lord, we pray that our trust and our hope would be in you, that we would hold fast, that our souls would arise, that our guilty consciences would be shaken off because our surety is in your presence. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, and thank you for providing these kind of assurances. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.